You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Quantum computing is coming, and it has the potential to be both exciting and terrifying. On today's episode of Trust Issues, we'll get into what it is and when we may start collectively experiencing its impact. One of technologists' greatest concerns about post-quantum computing centers on encryption. Even though most people don't think about it much, encryption is what keeps our data, bank accounts, medical records, email, and almost everything else safe as it moves through or is stored in cyberspace. But as soon as the first commercial quantum computer arrives, the encryption processes we take for granted today can be broken. And when this happens, all the digital information transmitted over the internet today and in the future will be vulnerable. It's why cryptographers, the folks who write and crack encryption code used for data security, are hard at work trying to design algorithms that will withstand the might of quantum computing. In fact, in July 2022, the U.S. federal agency NIST announced the first group of winners of a six-year competition to come up with encryption algorithms that will become part of its upcoming post-quantum cryptographic standard, which was reportedly two years out at the time of the announcement. These encryption methods are intended to have the capability to thwart future quantum computing attacks, but that doesn't mean businesses should wait for a new standard to get quantum ready. And that brings us to today's guest, Dr. Arez Weisbard, who's a cryptographer and is a technology and research lead here at CyberArk. And he holds a PhD in online privacy and reliability to give you a bit of an idea what direction he's coming at quantum computing from. And as you'll hear, he seems pretty calm about all of this. Here's my conversation with Dr. Arez Weisbard. Dr. Arez Weisbard, who is a technology and research lead at CyberArk. You have a PhD in online privacy and reliability. Did you have any notion that you'd wind up working in cybersecurity when you're pursuing your PhD? Yeah, I've been fascinated with cryptography and security for many years now. So like in the last 20 years, I've been pursuing that both in master's degree and the PhD while also working in the industry as a security architect, a cryptographer, researcher, and also diving into issues of privacy and trust during my PhD and later on. Cryptography. What, what is that? It's a great question uh, because most of us don't really notice cryptography in, in the daily life, but it's, it's all around us. I mean, if you're using uh, your email, your instant messaging, uh, you go online, usually there is cryptography behind it. And it's mostly about uh, two things. The first thing is confidentiality. You want to protect your data. So whenever you're transferring uh, Let's say you go online, you want to buy something, then uh, you put your credit card number and you want this uh, to be secure so nobody can uh, can get the card number. But more importantly, you, you also want to know that you're dealing with a trusted site. So proving the identity of the site, having this trust is also part of uh, cryptography. 
whenever you look at the address bar in your browser and you see this uh, this padlock that tells you everything is secure, well, cryptographer is the guy that knows how to build this padlock and uh, also many times how to break uh, earlier designs of these padlocks that are not really as secure as we thought they would be. And as a, a cryptographer and uh, also uh, many years as a security architect, it was my job to make sure that this theoretical concept is also something that happens in practice. Beyond the education, what's the career path that then takes you to um, being focused on cryptography as a, as a job? First of all, it's like the most fascinating thing, really. I mean, uh, like really a pure magic. Not only something that, you know, it's interesting, but it's cat and mouse game that you see both in cryptography and cybersecurity. You try to protect something and then the hacker tries to break it and then you put some additional layer and then it tries to go around it and so on. And this is a really amazing thing. So there could be somebody listening to this conversation right now as we record it? Yeah. I mean, we always known it's a possibility. We always suspected that that's a possibility. And about 10 years ago, uh, Edward Snowden leaked that uh, the NSA has done so at a really large scale, listening to conversation, to communication all over the world, even to those that they didn't suspect, right? Is this lawful intercept that you're referring to, or is it something else? It's something else, because uh, they're not targeting you. They just do a mass surveillance, gathering as much data as they can. And right now, we, we also know about many ways of using this big data. And they are using it to deal with criminals and terrorists and so on. It, it, it's a really delicate game of balancing uh, the good and the bad. But, but we do know it's being done. And that's endlessly fascinating. There's a, there's a lot going on there. And today at CyberArk, you're focused on technology and, and research what does that mean and, and how does quantum computing come into play? Maybe I'll start just by introducing the concept of a, of a quantum computer. Uh, we're used to uh, a computer that works on bits uh, that can be either in a state of a zero or a one, goes from some logical gates, uh, Boolean circuits, and outputs a, a result. And there you go, you have your PC or your cloud computing, but underneath it's all the same technology. Now, a quantum computer is doing things uh, very differently. First of all, it uses something magical known as qubit. Now, a qubit is a quantum bit that can be in a superposition of states. So it's not like that it's either a zero or a one. It can be in both states at a certain probability. And it's really hard to keep it in such a magical state because that's like the quantum phenomena. That's something that exists in a very fragile state of, of nature. So we can generate it, we can hold it for a while, but it's very hard to generate many of these qubits and keep it in a stable state, especially if we want to do a computation. We want to use it and we put it into a circuit that somehow manages to, to hold this state. If you start with a bunch of qubits and you run them through this quantum circuit, then it's like you went through all possible states at once. Now, that's a huge speed up, right? Because you don't need to go through every possible state uh, one by one. You can go over all of them simultaneously. Is a 
quantum computer than like a, like a regular computer that we know today, but kind of on steroids? Excellent question. Excellent question. Uh, because sometimes people think like that and say, just like, you know, like I have an old computer. If I'm getting a new computer, everything all of a sudden runs much faster. And we say, oh, it's great. It, it's running just the way we wanted it to be. Uh, no, that's not a state for a quantum computer. So you need to generate these qubits and you need to have a special quantum circuit to, to run those through. And the circuit would solve a particular problem. So you can have an algorithm or quantum uh, circuit that solve a particular problem. And what we would like to use it for is to solve problems that we cannot solve efficiently on a, on, on a classical computer. Now, one of those problems, uh, as we will head soon into the crypto aspects of this quantum computer, is that there is a circuit, there is an algorithm that uh, runs on a quantum computer that can break a number into its prime factors. Now, that's something very important. First, because we don't know how to do it. And there is another algorithm called the RSA. These algorithms, they rely on hardness assumption, like you it's hard to factor a number into its prime factors. It's hard to compute the discrete log of a modular, in modular arithmetic. And this algorithm, all of a sudden, it breaks this underlying assumption. It says, oh, you know, just give me a quantum computer and I can do that uh, efficiently. So what does the rise of quantum computing mean for the world of cryptography and encryption? So that, that's a very good question because back in the 90s, everybody also talked about it. But then we, we didn't have a computer to, to run these algorithms, right? And as I said, the uh, quantum algorithms can break encryption. So if there's a quantum computer coming, we want to get a new kind of uh, cryptography, something that would be secure. And up until last July, we, we didn't have anything. I mean, we had algorithms we, we believed to be secure. We tried developing new ones. But uh, cryptography is something that's worthwhile in the modern world only if it's standardized. There's a whole bunch of protocols that enable me to connect through my computer and your computer, and we have the servers, and maybe we can do things on the phone. And it all works because of standards. And only last July, NINST announced the first four candidates for post-quantum algorithms, algorithms that would be secure against the quantum computer. So right now we see a lot of advances and we also hear about a lot of investment. So there's all this money being poured into it, yet the computers don't exist. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's that's an excellent uh, point because, you know, I've been saying we don't have a quantum computer, but in fact we do have. We do have it at a very small scale and it's a matter of, time until we get them at scale. And, and that's the big race. When do we think that's going to be? Oh, that's uh, it's a million dollar question. It's more than a million dollar question. Nobody knows. <laughs> right. Un honestly, nobody knows. But, but uh, everybody agrees on, on two things. One, that it is getting closer. We are seeing progress. And the other thing is that changing algorithms in the real world takes a lot of time. It will take us years. So it's not something that we can wait until uh, such a computer exists. We have to prepare in advance. And so is this why countries like here in the US in December, uh, President Biden signed the Quantum Cybersecurity Preparedness Act into law? Is that why countries are, are 
really interested and and proactively doing things like that. Exactly, exactly. And I would add one more to that, which we briefly touched earlier. If our communication is being recorded today, then in many ways for some of our data, it's already too late. Because if you can record our uh, conversation now, and maybe you cannot decrypt it today, but 10, 15 years from now, you will be able to, then that's, uh, that's an issue. So as far as the threat goes, what can organizations do now to start preparing for quantum um, and protecting their, their data beyond encryption? So there are actually uh, guidelines that uh, are now uh, being suggested, for, for example, by uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security uh, and other organizations. First step is know your cryptography. That sounds pretty straightforward, right? Uh, okay, tell me the algorithms and I'll tell you if you're safe or not. And it's worthwhile mentioning that not all algorithms that we're using today will be broken by a quantum computer. So it's a race to basically get to the next stage of encryption. As I said, first of all, know your algorithm, right? You have to know uh, which one you're using directly, maybe in your uh, in your code, which one is being used by third-party libraries, which one is uh, used, you know, underneath the TLS, maybe the SSH, maybe by your cloud provider, and so on. T- TLS for for the folks who don't know what that is. That's the transport layer security that's underneath HTTPS and many other uh, uh, protocols that we're using. That's the thing that makes it secure, that makes sure that nobody can eavesdrop and you can also authenticate the other party that you're talking with. You have to know what are the algorithms that are being used in order to assess which of them needs to be replaced. Now, for an organization... If you're using TLS and let's say you're communicating with your browser to a a cloud provider, so you understand you may need to change, but it's not within your power to do so, right? You have to wait until the browser uh, manufacturer switch to a new and secure uh, TLS protocol. You need a cloud provider, the web server to do the same. So not everything is within your reach, but the first step is to really know all the areas. And and you mentioned Biden uh, earlier, the the, uh, presidential order is really to do this kind of mapping at the first half of this year. And then once you know it, you can start planning your migration. And planning the migration doesn't necessarily mean like a dropping ciphers. First of all, it's not an easy dropping. It's not that you take out the old one, you put the new one and everything's fine. There are legacy issue, backward compatibility, but they, they don't match, right? It's, it's a new kind of assumption. It's a different kind of algorithm. So key sizes are different. Ciphertext is different. Everything is different. And then as we were in the evaluation phase, all of a sudden, somebody came with some very clever way of how to break them. And, and by breaking, I mean breaking them on a classical computer. So not only that you didn't get this post-quantum security, you didn't get any security. We will probably want to have them in some sort of an hybrid model when we don't throw away the old one, but we add to it the new ones. How can organizations do this? The best suggestion is to follow the specification. I mean, uh, 
we've all been waiting for NIST to come up with the first algorithm to be standardized. We want them to standardize the entire process. We want to follow other standardization organizations because whatever we do, we want it want to be coming from a trusted source. And second, that we want it to be compatible with what others are doing, right? Do you want a protocol that will allow everybody to communicate with everybody just like we do today? What are post-quantum algorithms? I feel like we've covered that a little bit here, but, but I think it's important to, to bring it up. A post-quantum algorithm in a nutshell is a cryptographic algorithm that's going to stay secure even in the presence of a quantum computer. And to be really accurate about it, that means that the underlying security assumptions that it is based on, we don't know of a way that a quantum computer can break it. Maybe two years from now, we'll find some way that it can. Maybe five years from now, we'll find a way that a classical computer can. That's always the case with cryptography. We have algorithms being suggested and being broken. But a post-quantum algorithm is one that currently we don't know how to break using a quantum computer. Bringing this back to our wheelhouse and our, our focus, how might quantum computing impact identity security and, and cybersecurity for that matter? Proving your identity, traditionally it's been uh, about some sort of a secret, right? So something that only you know, something that only you own. Now, if you have a secret and I can decrypt this secret, then maybe I can present myself uh, as David. Now, uh, that's one thing. And and the other thing, uh, there is another cryptographic tool that is often used to, to prove identity is the digital signature. For example, in the blockchain case, <clears throat> when when I want to sign a transaction of giving you money, I'm signing on behalf of Erez that I'm giving David the money. Now, if somebody can forge that signature, they can transfer all the money I have, right? So my identity really relies on, on, on cryptography and therefore uh, it affects everything. I should point out that um, you wrote a blog post for our um, Medium CyberArk Engineering blog. It's called Quantum Computing is Going to Kill Classic Cryptography, But We Can Still Save It. I I recommend folks check that out. It's at medium.com backslash CyberArk dash engineering. Dr. Arez Weisbard, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much, first of all, for inviting me, being part of this great podcast. I'm trying to make this subject more accessible uh, and help people really get the idea where we stand today. And I'm really grateful for, for the opportunity to present it here. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 